1: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain oh, it? It's <laughs> beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Quiet. Preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy all our sensory systems. And then it explodes into this enormous core. Sense, and then it explodes into this enormous collage Of what this present moment looks like What it feels like And what it sounds like it explodes into this Technicolor dream And in this moment We are perfect, perfect We are full And we are human All the dangers which you have feared Are unnecessary productions Mind. Whether you experience heaven or hell, remember that it is your mind which creates it. Another public service message from Way Out. We care about your world.
0: So my guest is. Polly Young Eisendrath. She's a couples therapist and author of several books, including her most recent one, which is Love Among Equals. She's the creator of Real Dialogue, a skillful practice that uses a mindful approach to communication that lowers the sense of emotional threat that often arises in conflict situations, allowing us more spaciousness to work creatively with conflict and problems in our relationships which is also a part of her dialogue therapy practice. Her work is also informed by many years of Buddhist practice. So Polly, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour.
2: Well, thanks, Tonio. Uh, just want to mention that the book is called Love Between Equals, <laughs> just in case anybody wants to uh, buy it. It's, Of course, it's available on Amazon and local bookstores, but uh, it's Love Between Equals, Relationship as a Spiritual Path. It's really a way of saying that our relationships require development these days. You know, we can't just sail through them based on oppressing somebody else. So (laughs) the idea is that in this period of time... People want reciprocity, mutuality, equality in all of their relationships, and they want to be treated with respect, even in conflict. And we don't have skills for that. You know, we've never developed skills for that. We humans are more naturally hierarchical, and we quite naturally want to blame somebody else for things when they go wrong. So, you know, it's our nature really to sort of destroy our relationships, and we have to overcome that nature which, of course, we can do, and all of our spiritual practices direct us in this way, that we would overcome our lower nature, our habitual nature, our unconscious nature, in order to reach for what we're capable of but doesn't come naturally. So, you know, that's sort of the framework in which all of my work exists, even going back to my first book, which I wrote about couples in 1984, It was called Hags and Heroes, a feminist approach to Jungian psychotherapy with couples. I am a Jungian analyst also. I have been a Jungian analyst since 1986, but my work has always been around the issues of, can we avoid destroying our relationships? Can we avoid war? Can we avoid killing our own species? And so far, the answer is not really promising. It's possible, but, it is difficult to avoid destroying and avoid blaming and to avoid essentially objectifying or dehumanizing other people.
0: Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, many of us have had poor role models when it comes to relationships. And we'll actually be having a more in-depth conversation about your book, Love Between Equals, at a future date. But The current book that I'm reading for my next interview is titled Hagitude, since the title of one of your books is Hags and Heroes, and it's a wonderful book. Anyway, let's...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, well, there's a whole history. I mean, my first book is based on Sir Gawain and the Lady Ragnell, and I'm very familiar with all the stories that surround the Lady Ragnell, who was a medieval character and was a remarkable hag and when we come back to talk together about love between equals you know we can come back to the hag and lady ragnell and the question of what women desire above all else which is in that story so i'll leave that hanging and let's let's talk about real dialogue which is what we're here to talk about today i think
0: yes we are at least i think so as well <laughs> <laughs> so you've been a couples therapist for many years How did you come to doing that and also to this real dialogue method?
2: So for about 15 years of my career, I was an academic most of the time at Bryn Mawr College in Philadelphia. I was teaching clinical skills and developmental psychology, but I was teaching in an environment in which family therapy, particularly structural family therapy, was very popular. And in Philadelphia, we had a clinic where there was someone named Braulio Montalvo, who was a wonderful person, teaching a form of family therapy in which they were attempting to centralize the father. So, you know, in many families, the father is decentralized, especially in poor families and marginalized families. And So this form of family therapy was attempting to bring the father in. And in that process, they were diminishing the voice of the mother. The mother would often be ignored in the actual therapy. And I had a lot of students that were in this structural family therapy in their training, in their practica. And I was observing them through a one-way mirror. And I was just getting very anxious about what was happening to the women in the family who had been you know, number one caregivers, number one on the front line. Now we're trying to bring the father in, but the way we're doing this is diminishing the mother. So uh, my husband had a background in psychodrama and uh, I began to talk to Ed about, oh, just kind of wanting to form some sort of couples therapy in which the two people were equals. Ed was also a clinical social worker. He was working in structural family therapy for a while. He and I worked together. We did home visits and so on. Anyway, so over time, Ed and I decided we were going to try to make a method of couple therapy using some psychodrama techniques like alter ego and a certain kind of setup that we use in the room where there, at the time there were two therapists as the therapist for each member of the couple. Now, dialogue therapy can be done solo, and we were going to use these techniques to help the two people be able to communicate on an equal basis and to come up with methods and ideas for stopping their unconscious patterns, breaking up these unconscious patterns. And at the time, I was studying this medieval folk tale, as a Jungian analyst, and I was in my training to become a Jungian analyst, and the tale is Sir Gawain and the Lady Ragnell. So in that tale, you come to find out that women want sovereignty over their own lives. They want to be treated as equals. Well, men want sovereignty over their lives as well, or any gender of any human being. (laughs) They want sovereignty over their lives. What does that mean? It means the right to govern your own life you know, to make your own decisions, to be respected for your decisions. This is the kind of creature we are. We function with this kind of autonomy thing once we get to Adulthood, we want to govern ourselves. So anyway, we put together this package called Dialogue Therapy for Couples. I wrote Hags and Heroes later in 93. I wrote another book called You're Not What I Expected, Love After the Romance Has Ended. And Ed and I sort of set out on this trail to teach dialogue therapy to therapists, but not as a business, really, more like a fun thing to do. We would do retreats with therapists, particularly therapists who were married to each other, who were couples already, and we would offer these skills in dialogue therapy. And then we'd supervise the therapists and just kind of watch them grow over time. We didn't really organize it. We did not want to franchise it. We didn't really even want to market it. We just wanted to kind of do this with other therapists and grow and develop ourselves as couple therapists, which we did over many years. As my life changed, as Ed got ill and eventually died in 2014, I realized that there was no couple therapy that was out there, including emotion-focused therapy, the Imago method, which is, in fact, based on dialogue therapy because Harvey Hendricks came to our training so it was around 2016 emotion focused therapy imago the Gottman method none of these methods were working well for people that i was referring them into you know i was referring people that i saw in therapy into these methods did not feel they were working well so i said you know i'm just going to have to reorganize dialogue therapy make it a solo approach and i'm going to have to make it essentially a brand so i can teach it to people and i need a cohort a faculty to teach it. So since 2016, I've been teaching it. And of course, before COVID, I was traveling around California, Montreal, Boston, New Jersey, and then also in Vermont. Then everything shut down. Then suddenly we had to go online. I cannot teach dialogue therapy online. It requires live demonstrations. But the piece of the dialogue therapy that couples learn as a skill is called real dialogue. But they learn other things as well. But this little method that is a kind of little gem of a mindfulness method called real dialogue, I realized we could pop it out, kind of like a Lego piece, and we could teach it to other people. Because, you know, starting at the 2016 election, there were these huge polarizations developing in the US around politics. And so I thought, okay, here is an opportunity perhaps to teach this thing that I've always wanted to teach, which is that we have to respect each other in conflict, we humans, or we will kill each other. We're a very aggressive species, and we need to learn how to essentially contain that, because we can learn, because we're able to reflect on ourselves And started teaching Real Dialogue online, interviewing people, doing a lot of things to prepare what I thought would be a movement, you know, an international movement, if it could exist online and be supported, to create the skills, first of all, then using a method, and the method is a co-facilitated conversation in which there are two facilitators, and those two people have a structure, and they're teaching the skill to the two people who are in conflict. Often we also have the other members of the group, the organization, the business, the church, whatever, watching this co-facilitated conversation. Because what you see when you have two polarized people and you allow them to speak for themselves, you make them listen mindfully, you help them paraphrase and check, did I get that? Is there more? Once you see that unpacking, you see that both sides, both people, are human beings with deeply personal and important subjective reasons for believing what they believe. And you start to see this humanizing of people in conflict because you see really what the reason is the reasons of the heart here. It's never about rationality, it's about what happened to that individual that brought that person to the place they are. Then you begin to see the advantages of using these skills. But you can also then practice the skills and the method in your organization, your church, your town meeting, your school, whatever, because you have the skills to talk about topics that seem impossible to talk about. So on October 20th, we will have our first session of three sessions of training in the foundational skills. It's called Foundational Training in Dialogue Therapy and Real Dialogue. We introduce the concepts, the framework. Some of the concepts have to do with Buddhism. You don't have to be a Buddhist at all, but it's just introducing the ideas of mindfulness and how to pay attention to what's happening even when you're uncomfortable. And then some of the framework has to do with cognitive science, with the current research especially of Donald Hoffman, who has a book that's called The Case Against Reality, which basically makes the argument that we're all enclosed in our own subjective worlds. There's no reality out there. We're constructing it. We then have a language that says, that's a tree, but we're seeing a different kind of tree. And for reasons having to do with conflict, we need to then be very careful when one person is saying, you know, that's a pine tree, I'm absolutely sure. Any other person saying, no, it's an oak tree. I'm absolutely sure of it. That's when we need our skills and we need to recognize we're not seeing the same tree. So then we break into two groups. You've got your real dialogue group, which is people who want to become facilitators. We call them real dialogue specialists. They do not have to have mental health training. They can be coaches, leaders, pastors, mediators, or just regular people who want to learn this. And then on the mental health side, we have therapists who want to learn dialogue therapy for couples. And right now I have a faculty to teach on the dialogue therapy side. So I'm teaching on the real dialogue side. And so we're developing the real dialogue side of this, which is meant to be skills learned online. And we have now a developing app. You can access it at realdialogue.com, all lowercase, all one word realdialogue.com, and there you have to sign up for the app. There's a little menu on the upper right-hand corner where you can sign up. There's a lot of free stuff on the app. There's also some courses that we sell. And then on the app, you can also see the information about the training in Stowe. It's called Foundational Training. So the people that are learning the Real Dialogue method will be able to use it in their organizations And they will be able to also consult to other organizations. Real Dialogue method, I'm hoping, will translate to online training. Then we'll have the skill plus the method. Then there can be practice of Real Dialogue in communities all over the world. Hopefully, right? I mean, it's a grand idea, but it's been something that I've been working on all my life, that there is a way to lower the threat level of conflict so that humans can avoid war. And the reason that we can do that, when animals cannot avoid fighting, the animals only have the fight and flight responses. We have the reflective capacities to step back and to experience something without reacting. That's in our nature as well, but we have to cultivate it. That's how mindfulness comes about. The Buddha basically, the word he used for mindfulness was not mindfulness, (laughs) it was sati, and it means recollection, to remember. Remember, you have a different way. You don't have to go with your feelings, your emotions, and just react. You have another way, which is you can pay attention and you can lower that reactivity that you cultivate a matter-of-fact, open, friendly attitude towards your experience, even when it's painful. So in the training, we do meditation practice. It's what you could call phenomenological, we learn to pay attention to your snow globe, to our own subjective space, to your own seeing and hearing and feeling. You know, you see out, but you also see into your mind's eye. You hear out, but you also hear the voices in your head. You feel out, which you can feel your body, but you also feel your emotional centers. Once you get sensitized to your snow globe, you start to work with yourself then much more effectively So that's a kind of quick tour through the ideas, through the training. It starts on October 20th, and also my website, youngisendrath.com, also have the complete description of the training, the fees, and the continuing education credits we have for each session, 26 continuing education credits approved by the Licensing Board in Vermont here. That's 78 total for completing the full sessions. And if people complete all three of the trainings, they become certified dialogue therapy or real dialogue specialty. And there's still a few positions open in the training and all three sessions will be taking place at the Trap Family Lodge, which is a beautiful setting. You will learn the skills in the training. Conflicts that are in organizations that are repetitive and polarizing are typically taking place between certain individuals. It's almost always that there are a few that get hooked in. And this hook, which we learn a lot about in the training, it's called projective identification. And what that means is that all of us can project into other people things that we attribute to them, their feelings, their perceptions. We may attribute to another person that they're angry with us when we're really angry with them. Oh, you know, you look angry with me, but actually I'm angry with you. So I'm looking at you through my snow globe and you look angry, and so then I accuse you of being angry at me, so then I hook you, because you're gonna defend yourself. What do you mean angry? I wasn't angry. And then the two people that get into a cycle of conflict, I can't trust you you don't see me hear me feel me you don't listen to me you're never there when i need you or we can't get along we never see eye to eye so the you statements and the we statements hook people into the projective identification which is like a machine once it gets going it's an endless repetitive and this is true for couples as well as in organizations they realize that they can't seem to get out of it, no matter what they say. It's like a machine that's running. And uh, there are a lot of reasons for that being the case that have to do with human infancy, which all of us have gone through, where before we had words, before we knew what was going on, we had to control other people to get our needs met. The infant has to get responded to pretty accurately in terms of what it needs, you know, in terms of eating, sleeping, various kinds of comforting, changing the diapers, and so on. And the infant doesn't have any words. So how does it do that? Through emotions. The emotions capture the other person, evoke something from them, and they begin to react and do what needs to be done. All of us also have had this experience of being infants where it was a life or death. It was real life or death to get the other person to do what we needed them to do. So we all take our infancy with us through our entire lives. And there are times where we feel like it's life or death. I have to get you to understand that I need this. Or I have to get you to know I can't do this. And there's a feeling like I must bring you under my control. And if I can't, I will either die or leave or, you know, explode or whatever so this thing it's called projective identification it will hook people and in a work setting it can hook two people into repetitive conflict also then different points of view on something that seems like a life or death type of thing like you know it can seem life or death politics it can seem life or death abortion and the right to abortion can seem life or death vaccinations and health so topics that bring humans to this feeling of life or death can easily be hooked into projective identification. The cycle becomes repetitive, and then at its worst, it becomes humiliation and rage. And humiliation is the emotion that people feel when they experience their social status as being lowered in the group, like, you dismiss me, you demean me. When that social status is lowered in the group, there's a natural rage reaction, ah, you know, ah, and it's whether you control it or not, it's a natural reaction because we all defend ourselves in groups, we promote ourselves, we protect ourselves. So this rage humiliation cycle can get going at work and politics at churches And then there's no decision-making going on. There's no negotiation going on between those two people or between those two sides. Decisions can't be made because there are these blocks. We can't go forward because we can't get these people to cooperate. So these real dialogue skills and methods can be used in any environment. They address issues of polarization repetitive conflict, rage and humiliation, which do occur in organizations and groups everywhere, all over the world, no exceptions, because we've all had a long infancy, about 18 months before we have even the feeling of an individual self that's inside of a body. So everybody has a lot of practice in bringing other people under their control emotionally. And we have to break through that tendency to just stop and you know, experience the other person as a person like ourselves, and really listen, remain curious, etc. So, does that make sense? Yes, uh,
0: absolutely. It makes total sense. And also, that first eighteen-month period is pre-verbal, so it's very, very difficult for us to connect with any memories of the kind of wounds or traumas that we experienced during that time that have translated into our our latter lives.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And so that pre-verbal period, as it turns out, Tonio, is extremely important in our relationships for all of our lives.
0: Because essentially what happens when we get into conflict with another person, especially with someone that we love and we deeply care about, we need to have verbal skills. And yet we're actually coming out of a place of not being verbal because our emotional state is coming out of a non-verbal Beingness in our bodies, in a sense.
2: Precisely. Exactly. And most people don't know this. So, you know, really a hundred percent of the people that come to couple therapy, what they say is we need better communication. And what they mean is words, but it's really not a communication problem. It's a dehumanization problem. That's the problem that we're facing in polarization, repetitive conflict. We start to dehumanize the other person. And the other person that we treat as an enemy, we can even treat another person like a piece of furniture. We just want to move them around. know. they're,
0: they're, they're the things that we need to control in order to get our needs met. Right, right. Let's get into the skills that address that and help us work with those challenges.
2: So these three skills that I'm going to call speaking for yourself, listening mindfully, and remaining curious I would say, please go on to our app, realdialogue.com, and look at the things that are on there. We have little booklets, we have trainings. These three skills require quite a lot. On the surface, they sound simple, but when you actually begin to practice them, they're subtle and they're difficult. And the reason that they are is because of this emotional conditioning that you and I were just talking about. You know, we all have emotional conditioning that we're unaware of. And we can only really get aware of it by the feedback that other people give us. And we may not be open to that feedback <laughs> because we're defending ourselves. So, you know, we're in essentially a tape loop or a hamster wheel or something.
0: A default pattern.
2: A default. what people call it the default mode. You can call it ego, but the word ego is, I, I feel, is not quite the right word because it's not like, oh, I'm so great. <laughs> you know, It's more like I'm scared and I need to get my needs met and I'm stuck and I don't think you care about me. And it has a life or death flavor to it. You know, I have to preserve myself. I need to make a proper boundary. I mean, I hear people say these kinds of things all the time because they don't know how to work with their own snow globe, for one thing. And then they don't know what's preventing other people from hearing them, seeing them, and feeling them accurately. So, you know, they're feeling like, I can't get you to hear me. Or to see me. But part of the problem is that you can't see and hear accurately either. You know, it's not just the other side. You know, our feelings, what we call our feelings, are these emotional reactions that then we collect words around, like I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm this or that. All of these agitated states, as well as the positive ones, which are the relaxed and open states, they're not so easily distinguished by the words we assign them. They're really states of agitation or openness like relaxation and joy, which is really kind of an opening of the heart. But the difficult thing for us to recognize is that these emotions, these feelings, these drive our perceptions. That is the way we hear something, the way we see something, the way we experience something as being hard or soft or a pain in the knee or an itch on my ear. All of these things are affected by our emotions. They're not out there. Like the tree isn't out there. The tree is constructed by Polly's engagement with something through her visual experience. And if she is agitated, she may see the tree as being threatening. The tree looks like it's gonna fall over or whatever. I mean, I'm using tree because it's so neutral, you know. But when I'm looking at a person and I am in pain, I am seeing a different person then I would see if I'm relaxed. So my eyes, my ears, my nose, my body, my taste, all of these things are affected first by my feelings. Now, this is a Buddhist teaching. It turns out to be very accurate through cognitive science that we are now coming more and more to see that when people experience something that they see or they hear, it's happening in the moment that they're seeing and hearing. And so they are constructing it to a high degree subjectively. So we get into these arguments about what happened, you know, in some event. And there is no end to the argument because we had a different event, each one of us. So what we need to be able to do is to say, for me, this is what I heard. This is what I saw. This is what I smelled. Or, you know, when I read the data, this is the way I concluded somebody else will conclude it differently. Even if you video every crime, when I watch that video and you watch that video, we will see something different. We have this, let's say, unfortunate, you could also call it fortunate because it has lots of gifts in it, this tremendous subjectivity in our experiences. So it's not just that we can say, okay, we both agree this is a tree, and so we should start from that basis. No, no, we shouldn't start from that basis. We should start from the basis we each have an experience of a tree. And let's find out, here's what it's like for me, what's it like for you? So speaking for yourself is where you begin. You speak subjectively using only I statements, and that means really ruling out the we statements. Because the we statements, when you're in a conflict, if you say something like, well, we both want to be kind here. As soon as you say we, the other person is going to say, wait a minute, don't speak for me, I don't know if I want to be kind here. So it draws right away defensiveness, in the other person to use the we. Of course, using the you is the worst possible thing. You know, you're manipulating me, you're out of line here. Don't you care about climate change? Don't you even care about our children? All of these things arouse tremendous defensiveness, possibly feelings of humiliation, possibly rage. So you want to drop the you, no calling out of the other person's faults as a way to begin. That won't go where you want to go if you want to work with the other person or if you don't want to create war. Don't do that. Then, don't do the we because it hooks the other person many times. Now, this is when we're in conflict. You can use we other times. You can, when there's no conflict, there's no conflict. People just sail along and they think they know what they're talking about. When we get into conflict is where we start to get into the particulars. So the I statement includes, not just the I statement, but the recognition, it is a modesty, it's a humility, a recognition. I'm in my little snow globe here. I remember it this way. I saw it like this. I read it like this. When I encountered this, this was the sense I made out of it. How about you? You know What's it like in your snow globe? Speaking for yourself, you need to speak also in short enough chunks that the other person, if you're using these skills, can paraphrase you. So speaking for yourself lowers emotional threat level, recognizes your subjectivity. If I say to you something that's very strong about my own preferences, I use this sometimes as an example, and I have no bad feelings about Detroit. But if I say, I hate Detroit, I never want to go there again. That won't accuse you of anything. It doesn't draw you into me. And you might be able to hear, so you hate Detroit. Okay, we don't have to go there again. I mean, I get it. I won't ask you to go to Detroit with me again, because I understand you have a strong preference there. But if I say instead, Detroit is an awful place to visit, then you might say, what do you mean? I loved being in Detroit last time. They have all of these innovations. They're doing a lot of artistic work. People are blah, blah, blah. Then you get into an argument about Detroit, which really wasn't what you wanted to do. So you avoid these objective statements like Detroit's a terrible place to, or, you know, this happened on the 25th of July. No, I recall this being the 25th of July. Many people have different dates for things happening. That's okay. People remember it differently. So then people say, is there no such thing as objective reality? That's a whole big philosophical thing. Read Don Hoffman's case against reality. Listen to his TED talk. You will see that there's a lot of question about that. So back to speaking for yourself, humility, no objective statements, no rhetoric. Rhetoric is like, we should all be kind here. You know, this is the way it should be done. You know, we should do this or that. No, no rhetoric. When you're speaking for yourself in a conflict, it's I like this. I would like to do it this way. I feel this way. I remember it this way. I saw it like this. I heard it like this. Then with an attitude of how about you? So the listening side, listening mindfully, this is a harder skill to learn than speaking for yourself. Speaking for yourself is very challenging you have to learn to formulate what you want to say in a new way so you know it takes time it takes that pause it takes that okay I have a different way here that I can speak and I need to stop and formulate how can I say this for myself subjectively with that modesty this is the way I remember it this is what I believe but the listening you know if you look at all the research on negotiation on conflict and so on this is where things break down as on the listening side. And the reason is we do not hear other people accurately at all when we are emotionally threatened. And that includes me. So the reason why I can be so good at facilitating people's conversations, it's I'm not in conflict at that point. I'm an observer. When I'm in my own conflicts with my grown children, with my partner, I have difficulty also listening accurately because Once my emotions are activated and, you know, you don't want your son to buy a motorcycle, but that isn't really your job after that person is a full grown adult. And you know that, but you feel so threatened because you don't want to bear injury for your child, you know. So this gets you into a big conundrum. But again, you can learn. You can learn to say, oh, what kind of motorcycle, which is interest in the other person's desires. So listening mindfully means that you first, before you respond, before you go like, oh, Jesus, or whatever you want to say, you stop and you paraphrase. Now, when you paraphrase the other person, we, in our dialogue therapy training, we say, if possible, please don't say, I hear you saying blah, blah, blah. Because that sounds like you're not interested. It sounds like you're doing it as an exercise and you can barely get interested in the other person. So a skillful way to paraphrase is to step into the other person's snow globe as much as you can and get that sense of, so for you over there, it's like this. And so it goes something like, so I'm understanding that, You voted for Trump because you truly believe that he sincerely wants to help with, you know, bring the economy back and making working conditions better for people who are poor and on the margins. Did I get that? And if the other person says, yes, you got it, then you can say, is there more? which is essentially help me understand more. Or you can say, okay, here's what I feel about Trump, or Here's the belief that I have about Trumper. Here's what I read. You can respond then with speaking for yourself. And so the going back and forth between listening mindfully, paraphrasing with this real desire to understand, I'm understanding that this is what it's like for you. And can you tell me more? it gets you quite interested in doing this more and more. This is where you begin to develop a curiosity where you really do want to talk to people who have different points of view than you have because you begin to realize that you can explore other landscapes without having to oppose them or having to endorse them or having to agree with them. None of this real dialogue asks you to agree, endorse, resolve a conflict, compromise doesn't ask for any of that now you may be in a situation where you do have to resolve you do have to compromise and so you have to use this skill until you can do that but on the surface this is the skill is not asking you to compromise it's not asking you to do any number of things that would mean that you have to change your own position you don't have to do that so listening mindfully gives you this capacity over time Because you retain an equanimity, it also strengthens your mindfulness abilities like 5,000 percent because you're having to work with your own snow globe in a situation where you're very activated and you find out that in order for you to open your ears and to stop listening mostly to what you're saying to yourself, you have to work hard because All of us talk to ourselves when we're listening to others. Sometimes we're talking about the other person. Sometimes we're rehearsing what we're going to say. Sometimes we're reacting to the other person. And because of that talking going on in our own heads, it blocks our ears to hearing what the other person is saying. And we learn when we're practicing the skills of real dialogue with another person and we're in conflict, we learn that to open our ears and really listen requires our working with our own snow globe to lower the threat level inside of the snow globe and to say, essentially, I'm a human being and I want to understand people that are different from me, people that experience things differently from me. And that may be the person who's closest to me who sees things really differently than I do. My own partner and I have a lot of deep differences in the ways that we believe, in the ways that we see and understand things. And we both love watching movies and we often are seeing different movies. You know, I'm seeing a certain movie, he's seeing another movie. When we talk about it, it's interesting because there's a whole world there that I wouldn't have thought was there. So the final skill is called remaining curious. And in terms of Buddhist skills, This is the top dog skill. It's what is called in Zen, retaining a don't know mind. The don't know mind is the mind that is fresh in every moment. Like every moment is a new moment. Every moment is different from all the other moments. And so then in this moment, can you hear your partner tell the same joke again with an interest and a curiosity because you've never heard that joke in this moment? And so you're not primarily listening to your own voice in your own head saying, I've heard that joke a thousand times, I know where that's going. Instead, you're listening in the moment with curiosity. Your partner is telling this joke or this story in this moment. There must be a reason. You want to understand. How does it apply right now? So remaining curious is what you could call the top of the mountain kind of mindfulness skill. It's what people go to Zen retreats and practice for 10 hours a day so that they can retain an immediate present awareness and curiosity and interest. So curiosity, it's an emotion that we are born with. It's one of the five primary emotions and it motivates us to engage in our experiences and to learn from our experiences. We often cut off that emotion when we are in a polarized situation or when we're with our partner and we feel very hurt and we feel convinced that the other person has intentionally hurt us or harmed us we've cut off our curiosity and that means we're cutting off our engagement so these three skills are designed to bring about that don't know mind when we're in conflict with other people when we're activated in this difficult emotional way so you can remain curious when you are in pain you can then remain curious when you're dying when you're in pain you can be in the present moment so you learn how to do this in your relationships when you're in conflict if you practice these skills
0: so again this training that's starting on october 20th
2: so go to realdialogue.com, all lowercase all one word and all of the information on the training is also on my website, youngisendrath.com. You can Google Real Dialogue with my name, Polly Young Eisendrath. One other thing, I have a podcast too. It's called Enemies for More to Wisdom, and it's free. It's on all the major podcast stations, and it's really a teaching about human hostilities and how they can be used for our development. Uh, there are 48 or 49 episodes. Soon there will be 50 Uh, all free and all along the lines of what we've been talking about.
0: And how long does this training last?
2: The training is three four-day sessions. Each day is six hours. It's a very immersive and intensive training. And there are three of these four-day training sessions, but they're separated by several months. Starting October 20th, Trap Family Lodge, you have to register on my website or the app. We could probably take four or five more people, but we will be offering these trainings, these foundational trainings, probably two or three times a year.
0: Well, Polly, thank you so much for being on the show.
2: It was a pleasure. Thank you, Tonio. And we'll be in touch. Yes, we will. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: That was Polly Young Eisendrath. She's a couples therapist author of Love Between Equals, and the creator of Real Dialogue, a skillful practice that uses a mindful approach to communication that lowers the sense of emotional threat that often arises in conflict situations, allowing us more spaciousness to work creatively with conflict and problems in our relationships, which is also a part of her Dialogue Therapy practice that she does with her couple's clients. And that's it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening if you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again you can find this and all magical mystery tour shows at soundcloud.com slash wgdr and until next time take good care of yourselves and each other